one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So I have a missive from our dearly departed co-host from the Great Beyond. He's still now. alive, guys. <laughs> <laughs> He's departed from the us. podcast. As far as we're concerned, he might as well be for the next few months until he's back. But a very important update. Uh, evidently, he has he has given up the ghost when it comes to Linux. He's now a Mac man. No more Linux. No, he was wearing a black turtleneck and uh, presenting <laughs> have, with some degree no, of formality. We have no context on this. Like this, we just know that this is true. We don't know anything about why or how. Well, I feel like one point I should get out there because Alan expressly said he would be mad if we didn't uh, include this uh, to maintain his credibility. He said it's okay that he made the switch because Macs are based on Linux, <laughs> which I don't <laughs> know what that means, and I'm not sure. You're that's telling right. yourself that, Alan. <laughs> But, you know, we, we don't have narratives to justify our behavior. What do we have? Nothing. Uh, so take solace in that, Alan. We miss you uh, from the great beyond to your memory. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. After an unprecedented week away from recording, I feel refreshed. I feel rejuvenated in this task and i'm thrilled to be back here in the virtual studio with my regular co-host quinta jurassic hello who's in the irl studio with one of our two special guests this week eugenia lowstry lawfare's a cyber fellow hello and of course we are thrilled to be joined in the virtual studio along with me kind of but it's virtual studio so not quite the same molly reynolds senior fellow at the brook institution and senior editor at lawfare molly thank you for coming back on the show it's good to be back. Regular listeners might suspect we may be talking about Congress and or cyber technology issues on this <laughs> issue on this episode. And you are correct, because we have had a couple of big stories go down in the national security space on Capitol Hill, in Silicon Valley, and in other imagined geographies across our great nation. And for that reason, we are excited to have you here with us today to talk about what we are calling the We're Moving to Microsoft edition in honor of one of those movements. Some big news came down. It turns out it's really out pretty well for people who have made the jump to Microsoft temporarily, at least. We're going to see what we can get out of this. Maybe we'll get a little leverage. Maybe we can finally get Sophia Yan playing our intro music live like we've been demanding for years now. Um, so I don't know. We'll see what comes of it. But until then, we have a couple of big stories to walk through. So let's get started. Our first topic for today, showdown with only an okay rationale. The House and the Senate are preparing for a showdown over national security priorities with assistance for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and border security all hanging in the balance. Where does the debate seem likely to go from here and what will the global ramifications be? Topic two, bringing down the SAMA at Sam A. I don't know if how you pronounce that exact SAMA, but I think SAMA works. That's how I've been pronouncing it at least. OpenAI, the nonprofit question mark behind ChatGPT, has had a chaotic few weeks, with its board ousting CEO Sam Altman on the apparent grounds that he was not taking AI safety concerns seriously enough, only for the vast majority of the organization's employees to threaten to resign unless he was brought back, a step the board took just before they themselves resigned, at least most of them, all but one of them, it seems, at this point. 
What do these confusing events tell us about the state of the AI industry and this major player within it? And topic three, Carpe Ceasefire. A fragile pause in hostilities has emerged in Gaza, centered on the exchange of Israeli hostages held by Hamas for imprisoned Palestinians, momentum the Biden administration is reportedly intent on building on. Yet calls for a permanent ceasefire continue amidst mounting civilian casualties and humanitarian needs, and there remains no clear plan for a post-war Gaza. How long will the pause last? What happens when hostilities resume? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So listeners may recall that there was some controversy in Congress over the state of funding to both Israel and Ukraine, with the House eventually taking up a bill that would only have provided funding to Israel, uh, which I think made uh, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson a few friends in the Democratic caucus and is going nowhere fast in the Senate. That leaves the Senate to take up its own approach to this issue. So uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that he is hoping to bring to the floor a bill that would fund both Israel and Ukraine. Um, this is somewhat complicated by the fact that, as was also on the table with the House, McConnell and the Republicans have said that they want to link Ukraine aid to the question of border security in the United States, two issues that are not substantively connected, uh, but the Republicans are are doing their best to tie it together. Um, and I would be remiss if I did not note that all of this is, of course, happening uh, in, in the shadow of the expiration of everyone's favorite surveillance statute, Section 702, uh, which we are still waiting um, on a reauthorization of. And, of course, uh, coming in January and February, we're going to have yet another fight about keeping the government open. So, Molly, I will ask you the question that I feel like I always ask in these Congress segments, which is, what is going on? <laughs> um, sure. So I think um, we can start with this question of the supplemental funding package. Um, and here it's helpful to maybe rewind a little bit, go back to what is 1 million, uh, but also like two actual months ago, 1 million years, I should say, but two actual months, um, when we were approaching the end of September and the deadline for keeping the government open for passing a temporary spending bill. And um, there, again, this question of aid for Ukraine was a really live issue. Um, and ultimately, it did not make it into the deal that kept the government open through um, mid-November. Um, the Senate at that point wanted to include uh, some additional assistance for Ukraine in that package. Ultimately, when the House moved on a measure that did not have aid for Ukraine, um, the Senate, driven primarily by Senate Republicans kind of bucking Leader McConnell, who has been uh, one of the chief advocates of vigorous support for Ukraine, Senate Republicans said, no, we are fine with moving this without additional support for Ukraine. Um, Democrats went along with that. And so we got 45 days of government funding and no additional aid for Ukraine. Not long after that is um, when there was the attack by Hamas um, in Israel, uh, sort of elevating a new issue onto the agenda. And then we got from the Biden administration a proposal, a request for um, about 106 billion dollars in supplemental funding that would cover, again, sort of the four issues, Quinta, that you laid out. Um, Ukraine, Israel, also money for the for border security, and then some additional assistance for Taiwan, which 
on one level is a little bit of sort of the odd person out of this uh, of this package. I think we should think about that Taiwan money as an effort to maybe bring along some folks who um, care deeply about, you know, the U.S.'s stance vis-a-vis China, care deeply about providing robust assistance to Taiwan. It's not clear that there's anyone who is going to vote f- for the package simply because it has the Taiwan money, but it might um, sort of sweeten the deal for some of what uh, we sometimes call China hawks um, in um, in Congress. Uh, in terms of where things stand right now, um, as we're recording this, before Thanksgiving, uh, the House, um, as Quinta mentioned, passed an Israel-only measure. It also contained some offsetting cuts that aren't really offsetting from the IRS budget as a way to kind of get it through with Republican votes that I think it was clear that without those IRS cuts, some number of Republicans were going to vote against it. And uh, Speaker Johnson did not want to have that as his sort of first major legislative play. So he put in the IRS cuts, um, went over to the Senate. Um, and then next week, um, Leader Schumer in the Senate has indicated that he plans to try and bring this bigger package with Ukraine and Israel and border security and Taiwan to the floor of the Senate. Right now, it seems like the biggest um, sticking point in those negotiations is around what are the border measures that get included in that package. Republicans in particular draw a distinction between just additional money for the border versus quote unquote policy changes, exactly what policy changes they're pursuing and what they might actually get Democrats to agree to, I'm less sure of. But it does seem like it's there's been a bipartisan group of senators trying to work out what those border provisions could look like. And so it seems like the Senate could be driving towards an agreement. Obviously, Many things could go wrong at many points, um, even before it gets to the floor or even in its uh, efforts to to pass the Senate, let alone what would happen when it would go over to the House, where there is both Republican, some Republican uh, opposition to additional funding for Israel without some sort of cut elsewhere that corresponds to it. There is um, absolutely a growing block of House Republicans who are not supportive of additional assistance to Ukraine. Um, The size of the anti-Ukraine aid block in the House Republican conference has been getting bigger, not smaller over time. If the Senate is able to reach an agreement on border provisions, they will fall, fall far short of what the House Republicans passed uh, or uh, worked on on the border earlier in um, in the year, uh, HR two. I actually don't recall whether that has passed the House or not, uh, but that's sort of the House Republicans kind of marquee uh, border package. Um, and then, as I said, I don't think that Taiwan, the Taiwan aid, is sort of the sweetener that saves this whole deal in the House. So something could happen um, by the end of the year, or it could not. There isn't. Unlike, say, the government funding deadlines that will um, reappear in the new year or the 702 expiration that you mentioned, Quinta, there isn't the same kind of exploding deadline in the way that there sometimes is for Congress. Um, There is this particularly in the case of the um, the aid to Ukraine, I think a sense from people who are watching that conflict quite closely that the Ukrainians need all the help that they can get. But there isn't there isn't necessarily the same kind of action forcing mechanism that 
we sometimes um, see in Congress. And just last thing I'll say is the politics are really complicated. Um, sometimes when we are talking about these kinds of packages in Congress that try to link issues together, we are thinking about them such that that issue linkage is meant to build support that, you know, you have some block of people who really care about Ukraine and you have some block of people who really care about Israel. And if you put them together, that um, helps get the bill across the finish line. But in this case, there are some, um, and particularly in the case of Israel, kind of evolving cross-cutting coalitions. Um, So there are Republicans who are uh, not enthusiastic about additional aid for Israel without budget cuts elsewhere. There are Democrats who are not enthusiastic about additional aid for Israel without sort of other constraints, other conditions placed on it that you've started to kind of hear some support for. So there's all kinds of things that could derail progress on all of this. Scott, what do you make of the kind of foreign policy implications of this, both in terms of how much Ukraine and Israel need the the aid under discussion, uh, respectively, and then also in terms of, you know, the foreign policy goals of the administration and how Congress is uh, weighing in there? There's definitely a very serious need here, particularly on the Ukrainian side, right? Across the kind of three conflicts, I have less of a sense of the border needs in parks. It's a debate over exactly what the legal parameters are versus assistance is kind of a complicates a little bit. I don't know the contours of that as well. Across these three uh, situations, Taiwan, Israel, Ukraine, you have kind of a spectrum of need, right? You have Ukraine where they are really reliant upon substantial foreign assistance. My sense is that there are probably tools in place by which the Biden administration can ration out and keep degrees of support to them in terms of military material, particularly like core material, material like our ammunition, um, shells, things like that, draw it out a little bit longer. A lot of that is provided through what's called a drawdown authority, which is where the United States is essentially transferring its existing stocks. And then they essentially seek assistance often to replenish those stocks, essentially. And so there's some element, that's not the entirety of this number by any stretch of the imagination, but there is additional drawdown authority still available out there, uh, in part more than it was initially expected six or eight months ago, because there was an accounting error. The Defense Department identified that freed up a couple extra billion dollars, if I recall correctly, of assistance. There's a little runway there. The bigger problem actually is, in a lot of ways, the direct foreign assistance. Um, it also includes budgetary support for the Ukrainian government. Not surprisingly, Ukraine has not had a very functional economy in the last few war-stricken years, um, and they're heavily reliant on foreign assistance to support uh, you know, its federal healthcare system, its federal employees, a lot of the other things it needs to have a functioning society and economy to the extent it can while in this ongoing war. And complicating it further, um, it seems like European allies are also having trouble and debates about getting their share of support to the Ukrainians as well. So the Ukrainians are in a, in a difficult situation. I don't know if it's quite dire yet. Um, for example, I if this all gets dragged out to the next government shutdown fight in January, I'm not sure that delta between now and January is a make or break for the Ukrainians, um, but it certainly a, a gets a serious situation. Israel certainly can reuse additional assistance. My sense is they are not hard up for it, um, but there may be certain technologies, certain weapons they are in need of, um, certain things the United States is interested in providing. The interesting thing here is what Molly noted, the shift to in the, the degree of support and conditionality around this assistance. That's actually a pretty dramatic shift we're seeing. I don't know how it's going to manifest in Congress, which I suspect is when you're actually forced members to vote more strongly in Israel's 
corner than it may seem just based on rhetoric, despite growing kind of criticism of Israel from particularly the left and the Democratic Party. But, you know, conditionality is something the Biden administration hinted it might be willing to at least consider. It might be a good idea in certain circumstances this past week. That would be a real shift in the U.S.-Israel relationship, even at uh, if done at a fairly limited level, something we really haven't seen since maybe like the George H.W. Bush administration. And that was not really around security assistance, as I recall. But, uh, you know, it, it is a it, it we'll have to see what actually comes of that. But it seems like support is actually somewhat dwindling uh, around Israeli support is weakening, or at least becoming more complicated as time passes there. But there may not be as much urgent need. Nonetheless, that might provide its own momentum for actually providing it. And then Taiwan is kind of in a situation where everybody's worried about 2027 as being a date where you need to get the Taiwanese up to snuff. And as Molly noted, there's a contingent of folks who are very focused on China. And importantly, there's a lot of people who are highly critical of the war in Ukraine because it pulls away from attention on and resources that they argue should be provided to counter China, particularly around Taiwan. And so it's particularly perhaps targeting those people who are saying, you know, Ukraine's taking away from this other priority. No, we can serve that other priority to these other ways. I don't think there's as urgent need for this types of assistance. It's more part of a long-term multi-year mission to say we need to fortify Taiwan against potential Chinese attack as a deterrent measure to deter China from attacking, hopefully in 2027 or, or shortly thereafter, at which point people think it'll be a military realistic possibility, essentially. That's all to say, you know, these are all serious items. Um, the bundling them with it together is is obviously a political, a part of the political equation for getting them across across the bow. The number one priority for the Biden administration is the Ukraine package, and and I suspect they're going to really, really go to the mat on that and trying to get it through, in part because they see this as kind of the last good opportunity to do this before 2024. And uh, hopefully this package would drag out and, and, and provide at least the support they need to get the Ukrainians entering into even peace negotiations on a favorable position. And absent that, you know, the Ukrainians are going to be in a hard position and the administration, the Ukraine policy is going to be in a really hard position. I have a follow-up question, because if I understand this correctly, McConnell has been trying to link the Ukraine aid to uh, border security, right? And Maybe I just don't understand the process here, but it would be great for me to understand how are these issues connected? What are some of the asks around border security? And how do you think it's going to impact whatever aid is provided to Ukraine or Israel? Yeah, so I haven't been following the sort of ins and outs of the negotiations closely enough to be able to talk about kind of specifically what's on the table, other than to say, sort of underline something that I said before, which is around the fact that most of what's in the Biden administration's ask um, in their proposal is just around additional funding to support operations on the border. What Republicans are pursuing are some policy changes. Again, I can't speak in any detail to what those are, but they make this sort of distinction. And you'll hear a number of Republicans um, in the Senate say, you know, more money is not enough, that we also need other kinds of changes in order to be supportive of this package. I think politically, what we're seeing is McConnell, who, again, is one of the, frankly, in all of Congress, but certainly in the Republican Party, um, one of the most vigorous and outspoken proponents of um, additional support um, for Ukraine, acknowledging that sort of the support from his fellow Senate Republicans for additional aid to Ukraine is waning. So for sort of the first chunk of time after the Russian invasion, basically, we had an 
like an elite consensus in Washington that we needed to provide um, ample assistance to the Ukrainians. And on the Republican side of the aisle, that was really held together by McConnell and McConnell's own sort of vigorous support and his political base of power. And as that has waned over time, um, I mentioned earlier that, you know, in late September, he got basically overruled by balance of his conference on the idea of moving a temporary spending bill without um, aid for Ukraine. Um, I think he recognizes that if he's going to um, accomplish this goal that's really important to him, he's going to need to include other provisions that will bring along some of his Republican um, colleagues. And I think border security is really um, a piece of that. I also think it's worth noting, and this is, I think, part of why we might actually drive, they might actually drive this to a deal, is that there are some Democrats, mainly Democrats in the House from vulnerable House districts, and probably also a couple of the um, Senate Democrats who are running for re-election in red states, who I think feel like it would be politically helpful to them to be able to say next year that they voted for something that enhances border security. I think the sort of evolving politics of immigration in the United States being that we've sort of political scientists call this thermostatic public opinion, but we've sort of saw in the Trump years, a real sort of surge in pro-immigrant sentiment that is now waning um, and sort of more growing anti-immigrant sentiment. And I think that there are Democrats who feel like it would be politically helpful to them to be able to say, oh, we voted for this thing. We passed this, this border security measure. We're not weak on immigration like Republicans say we are, that sort of thing. And so I think that, that there might actually be like a political sweet spot that helps bring along some Republicans, is good for some Democrats, gets them to vote for something that they might not otherwise, some of their colleagues aren't going to be excited about. Um, and that might help drive to a deal. Although again, many things could go wrong. So Molly, I want to ask you, the, you know, the big development we've seen out of Congress the last few weeks was this deal to kick the can down the road on a potential government closure until January, a 45-day kind of uh, forgiving, somewhat forgiving window uh, so everyone can enjoy their Christmas holiday. But like as you noted, it strips away the one real clear forcing event that we have here, 702 being the other one. But even 702 isn't the sort of as hard a drop off or as sharp a cliff as maybe government closure would um, in terms of it's a it's an intelligence lapse for, for a certain period until you get reauthorization. Is that something that helps or hurts the efforts to drive some sort of deal around this package? And is it something that could still come into play? I mean, again, I don't think any of these needs will go away if there isn't a deal that's struck by January. And so is the backup plan, the safety net for the Biden administration, or potentially, I guess, for Republicans in the House, the alter alternative to say, let's wait till the government closure, and that gives one or the other of us more leverage, another tool to try and drive a deal? Or have the two been segregated enough that they're now on kind of separate tracks? Yeah, it's hard to say. I think on one hand, to the extent that there is a somewhat distinct coalition that you might build to pass the foreign aid supplemental, separating that from the overall debate over um, government funding might be helpful. And certainly, 
you have um, freed up some calendar space to work on the supplemental by punting the rest of the government funding decisions into early next year. Um, at the same time, as you note, um, by punting the government funding decisions to early next year, we've taken away sort of the biggest action forcing mechanism um, that Congress had. I don't know if not finishing the foreign assistance supplemental now means that the backup plan is that they try to do it in January um, or early February with one of the other spending packages. I think there are huge, big, thorny questions about what those packages are going to look like, whether there's going to be more than one of them, whether they're all going to be together in one bill, when they're going to do it, all of that, whether there's going to be a shutdown along the way. That's all... It's all sort of waiting for us, lurking in January 2024. But it's it's absolutely true that this is the first December um, in quite some time where we're not actively debating a measure to keep the government open before Christmas. And I honestly believe that part of why they kicked the deadline into early next year is so that Mike Johnson could say, we didn't get jammed by Christmas. That like has taken on a huge amount of rhetorical power in the House Republican Conference. But I just I it's hard to um, it's hard to sort of game out exactly what's going to happen. Well, speaking of infighting on Capitol Hill, let us go to some <laughs> other infighting on the other side of the country in Silicon Valley, where we have seen a momentous couple of weeks. Some of the weirder couple of weeks from a really weird part of the country that I think I've ever seen uh, in my various years of watching, of being a tech nerd and watching weird tech developments. Uh, Of course, just before Thanksgiving, we saw an unprecedented action where it seemed like OpenAI, the nonprofit parent organization, I forget whether OpenAI is the nonprofit parent organization or the for-profit element within it. I forget how it's structured, but that is both a non- a lot, honestly. Yes. It's not, and it's not my fault for the record, (laughs) (laughs) but I will say it about this, is that the organization that's somewhat nonprofit, but has a for-profit wing, at least has for the last several years, that runs ChatGPT, ousted their very high-profile CEO, Sam Altman, on a vote by the board. That was unexpected, as far as I can tell. I don't think people saw that coming, particularly given his central role is probably the most visible figure in the burgeoning AI industry. Um, Within days, it was reported that he was leaving to Microsoft to start a research center there focused on AI, and that almost all of OpenAI's 800-plus staffers were going with him, uh, according to an open letter that they said signed protesting the board's decision to remove him. And by the end of the weekend, this all occurred after Sam Altman was, in fact, back as CEO of OpenAI. The members of the board that had ousted him were gone, at least all but one of them, with whom he appears to have spent Thanksgiving, judging from his Twitter account very curiously, um, (laughs) noting that they had spent the holiday together. So I guess they made amends at some point through this whole process and bringing in Larry Summers, of all people, and one or two other people on as a beginnings of a whole new board that's going to be overlooking this enterprise. It's a pretty notable development in an industry that everyone sees as the big emerging force that's going to be shaping a lot of our lives as users and consumers of electronic technology of all sorts of varieties, whether it's uh, on internet services, whether it's search engines, whether it's all sorts of things. You know, Eugenia, you wrote a really interesting piece on this for us today on Lawfare. Uh, and I should be no- I should note, by the way, we're recording on Tuesday, November 28th, a little earlier than we usually do uh, for folks who may be timestamping us in case something happens in the next 48 hours on any of these stories. But Eugenia, you wrote a useful piece that went up today, uh, co-authored with Alan and our friend Chini Sharma, 
that goes into what this might mean, what we can learn about the AI industry from this event. Tell us what your takeaways are. Like, what does this tell you about the AI industry, about open AI in particular, which is such a central actor within it, and what trajectory this tells us both are headed on? Well, let me just say that even though Alan Cheney and I wrote this piece and we've been tracking this, we've been sharing, you know, all of the developments basically as they were happening, I'm still like very confused. You know, it's not just you. I'm I'm still like trying to understand what the open AI structure looks like. It it's just complicated and different. You know, I, I think the upshot from our piece is that what this means is that there is of course, an inherent tension that you can definitely see in the way that OpenAI was structured and the way that they've been operating. They were initially a, you know, a nonprofit. They had a mission to kind of develop AI safely and with certain controls. But then, of course, there are market drivers, right, that, that came into play. Developing AI is very expensive and you need to find a way to monetize what, what you're doing. And having both this kind of nonprofit, but also a for-profit arm, it's natural, right? Like when we talk about it, it doesn't seem that surprising that there would be tensions between the objectives, the goals that these two sides of the organization were trying to accomplish. So basically, I, I think the most important lesson of everything that happened at OpenAI, besides what it means for the company itself, is that... You cannot really trust at this point companies to self-regulate. If you think that regulation of AI is important, then that will need to come from the top. Because when there are these tensions, when there is a need to follow the, you know, the market drivers, to be the first one to market, to be, you know, better than your competition, that's going to pull you away from that cautious research that might seem a little bit more lofty and just more on the ideal side. Like, you cannot do that if you're out of the race. So I want to ask you, can you give us a little bit of a sense about what the meta debate was between Altman and the board? You know, we've heard reports of him having friction with I think Helen Toner, one of the board mem- former board members, now since resigned, who is somewhat more critical or at least concerned with AI safety. Um, there are concerns about reportedly that Altman, the former board members, thought Altman wasn't being entirely transparent with them about certain developments. You know, what is the kind of policy debate that's underlying this that led the board to do something so dramatic and then reverse it so dramatically? And and who comes out the winner in that debate? So much of this is. Still speculation. I think there. I, I haven't seen any reports that clearly state this is what happened. This was the breakdown of communication between Altman and the board. As you mentioned before, this was definitely a surprise. I don't think anyone was expecting the board's announcement and an Altman included. Um, so if there was one kind of moment that that triggered this, I don't think we know it. There has been reports of. Different issues that hint at what the at what the difference between them was, right? Especially some of the members of the board who were maybe a little bit more focused on safety, on cautious research, and less on getting new products to market. And so we have, for example, the initial 
communication from OpenAI stated that Altman had not been consistently candid in his communications with the board. And there was a lot of speculation about what that meant, whether it was communication around the research that was happening at OpenAI. We learned in the last couple of days that there was a letter circulated about a apparent breakthrough at OpenAI, a Q-star, which apparently was able to solve some mathematical equations. Whether that was kind of the issue that they were discussing or whether it was Altman's other ventures outside of OpenAI, which were, you know, I think our piece uh, mentions this, but he was seeking funding for a company focused on AI chips and whether him transitioning or focusing his attention on ventures that were going to basically accelerate the development of AI was in contradiction with with his mission, with the mission of, of the nonprofit. So we talk about in the piece about the difference between the doomers and the boosters, which is kind of a simplistic, tongue-in-cheek way of describing the, the differences in the approaches. There were some people who were more concerned about making sure that AI was safe. And in there, you know, the doomers... I, I think some people put in the same in, in that bucket, both people who are concerned about the potential for AI to eventually control us all, but also people who might be worried about, you know, exacerbating bias, about not protecting privacy, about not having a safe product. Right. So I, I just want to make make it clear that some people might consider both of those doomers, but I think it's worth distinguishing them. And then you have the boosters who might want to ensure that they are continuing their advantage, that they're at the cutting edge, and that they're leading development. We think about OpenAI as the leader because they, I think some reports talk about how they rushed the deployment of ChatGPT because there were some concerns that their, their competitor was going to release the product first. And that is really what <laughs> triggered all of our concerns around AI, right, when last year uh, ChatGPT came out. So, Eugenia, one of the big things that I took away from your piece that you mentioned earlier was the degree to which this whole episode demonstrates the limits of the potential of self-regulation of AI. And so, for me, at least, a natural follow-up question to that is, well, if not self-regulation, then what? What other kind of regulation? <laughs> and obviously, we've seen in Congress, particularly in the Senate this year, this sort of series of, I forget exactly what word they're using to describe them, forums um, that Senator Schumer and a number of other senators have convened to have these conversations around AI. And so I'm curious to hear how you think this episode with OpenAI does or does not affect the prospects for government regulation, at least from sort of the federal government of AI. Can I add one thing before you answer that? Because just to, to add on that, my impression at least is that Sam Altman has been very uh, present on the Hill. I don't know if he's specifically been at these fora, but in terms of, you know, presenting OpenAI as kind of the good guys, sketching out options for what regulation might look like. I will say that my takeaway from all of this is that these people are a bunch of clowns in a very large clown car and they should not be trusted with sharp objects. 
um, which may be what your piece and, and Molly um, are, are getting to. And so part of my question is also insofar as the conversation around regulation on the Hill has been in part shaped by Altman, how his eviction and triumphant return might shape that continuing conversation. You know, I, I think it's encouraging that in the last year we have seen those forums, that we have seen the U.S. Congress at least try to understand what AI is, what are the harms, you know, what's the big deal. I think where we stand right now is that a lot of the policy work remains voluntary. It remains guidelines. It remains voluntary commitments from companies. And while that is not the worst place to be, there is also a recognition, in, and I think there is a document, the, one, the same document that says, here are the voluntary commitments. It also says, this is the first step, and we are going to need laws. What that will look like, I don't know, and I'm not going to you know, attempt to you know, talk about what that will look right now. Um, that I think is an entirely different big conversation. We need another another hour for it, um, at least. And Quinta, who will you trust to kind of shape that conversation? Yes, OpenAI has been very present, but we've also seen civil society present. The fact that there is more room to talk about AI also allows other perspectives to be included. And hopefully whenever Congress resumes these forums, resumes talking to people, they will include those perspectives as well. And if anything, the whole mess at OpenAI will will show that you need to take Altman's and, you know, his peers' positions with maybe a little grain of salt and balance that with other perspectives. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm curious a little bit about what the actual kind of exchange with Microsoft was over this because it strikes me as maybe a little different than a lot of people thought it was based on my understanding of this technology and like how it would fit in corporate kind of ownership structures, right? Because the underlying assumption of a lot of people was was that before Altman was hired back by the board, that Microsoft had maybe committed a coup because they basically had peeled Altman away and were going to take his 700 best workers with them. And we're going to be able to recreate OpenAI in Microsoft. I think I actually saw people saying essentially that, right? But it strikes me, I don't think that's actually that easy to do, right? Like the the reason these are such expensive models is because they're actually, you're, you're growing them, you're cultivating them. They're kind of unique entities that you are feeding, not just coding and developing, but also feeding data into developing different knowledge bases that they're then cultivating and building on top of. So it's, it strikes me that a lot of that IP, and particularly this is probably true of 
large language models and other sorts of models that are very data and learning dependent, it strikes me as as not an easy thing to to, to transfer with just human knowledge. My, my sense is OpenAI would still probably hold a lot of these models and recreating them would be really expensive and labor intensive by Microsoft. So maybe the threat here was less that Microsoft was going to recreate OpenAI and more that it was going the collective kind of dissolution of OpenAI was going to just really gut the enterprise of OpenAI because of all the staff departures, which might explain why Microsoft, as long as everybody else, seemed very on board with Altman and the rest of these staffers all coming back to OpenAI, um, as opposed to kind of letting it dissolve. But that thinking of it that way kind of made a little bit more sense to me as to why we would see such a sudden reversal, which is that going to Microsoft really was not a good alternative. It was really sub sub. A, a very much a bad plan B for anybody who actually wants to see AI technology continue to develop in one way or another. Does that sound right to you, Eugenia? And 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 if so, like what does it tell us about actors like OpenAI? I mean, does it suggest that like these early actors we're seeing now have a little bit maybe of an industry and early start advantage that's really going to be potentially enduring? And that means that that changes the regulatory environment a little bit because you're not worried about small actors. You're really worried about maybe these big companies that already have the substantial head start and are therefore going to be able to commercialize, build the revenue streams, continue developing it. And, and like we've seen, frankly, with a lot of other technology companies, grow dramatically in a way that might be harder to compete with, uh, at least organically, barring some sort of government intervention. Does that sound, sound right to you at all? That sounds generally right. Yes. I would just note a couple of things. First, you know, Microsoft already had a pre-existing relationship with OpenAI. Um, they are a minority owner of the OpenAI LLC, which is the capped profit company of OpenAI. So they're already kind of connected. I think the difference would have been for some Altman and whoever followed him between going to Microsoft and starting kind of fresh, right? Like that's where it would be beneficial for them because Microsoft has funding. Microsoft already has ChatGPT in their products. It would be an easier restart instead of having to go at it fresh, finding new sources of funding, um, have a new startup that would have to compete with uh, OpenAI. And even when all of this was going down, I think Microsoft was pretty good at walking the fine line of saying, you know, we're excited to welcome some Altman and whoever wants to come, but we're still excited about our partnership with OpenAI. They were not saying, well, this is the end of OpenAI, right? It, it was a, a fine line and they were kind of maintaining both sides. And I think at the end of the day, they were they were considered the big winners out of this entire mess. Even when Sam Altman returned, it was like, oh, we talked with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, and, you know, this is a welcome development by all stakeholders involved. So, you know, I, I don't know that I was seeing it necessarily as a coup from Microsoft, but more than at the end of the day, just benefiting from from the chaos. I will say I've Personally, the thing I found most clarifying about this whole mess was a Matt Levine, who writes the Money Stuff newsletter for Bloomberg, had a diagram of the 
bewildering org chart for OpenAI and then just wrote over the little arrow that leads from the Microsoft box to the OpenAI box um, money in big green letters, (laughs) (laughs) which I I think clarified a lot of my confusion about the situation. (laughs) As uh, as Quinta described it to me, that's the Matt Levine magic. From an attempted ouster in Silicon Valley, let's go to another attempt in Gaza, where Israel continues its military campaign to remove Hamas from power. Last week, the Israeli government and Hamas announced a first pause in hostilities and a hostage deal. The four-day pause was later extended for an extra 48 hours, allowing more hostages to be exchanged. While the deal was brokered by Qatar, many credit Israeli internal political pressures with forcing Netanyahu's government to prioritize the issue. This is a welcome but fragile reprieve to the hostilities, with mounting civilian casualties. The humanitarian needs in Gaza have prompted concerns about U.S. support to Israel, and the Biden administration has suggested it might impose some conditions on aid, and it might take steps to limit West Bank settler violence. The pause comes at a time of increasing calls for a permanent ceasefire among some Democrats and younger voters who have concerns about Biden's stance in support of Israel. So, Scott, let me start by turning this to you. I guess my first question is more to do with nomenclature. So I have seen the terms ceasefire and pause being thrown around, sometimes even being used interchangeably. So what exactly is it that Israel and Hamas agreed to? I think it's best to think of this as a humanitarian pause. Um, you know, we talked a little bit on the podcast before. Ceasefire doesn't necessarily mean anything that different technically. It often is taken, and particularly in the Middle East, in the Middle Eastern context, has often meant something a little more enduring or permanent. I mean, in theory, it's been ceasefires that have been stopping Israeli Hamas uh, hostilities back and forth since the last Israeli military operation in the Gaza Strip, and the one before that, and the one before that. So there's nothing like an agreement to a permanent ceasefire. The Israelis have reportedly, uh, at least uh, as of today told the Americans that they're only willing to consider pauses for another 10 days. Um, I'm actually not sure that's 10 days total or an additional 10 days from the, the current point. The key point being they see it as need, they see a need to return to resuming military operations at a substantial tempo soon-ish. That's not surprising, really. I mean, these windows of opportunity are important because they do allow people to get humanitarian assistance in, to get the wounded to care. Um, There's a reason why humanitarian actors support them, pursue them. But we shouldn't be naive about the fact there are also strategic costs. Um, It gives the opportunities for Hamas military forces um, that Israel is trying to target to uh, rally, to collaborate, to relocate, to fortify themselves, to resupply to do a bunch of other things that Israel is really worried about them doing, you know, setting aside questions as to whether what they're doing is is right or desirable. Um, you can understand from Israel, Israel's perspective that that's not a neutral strategic trade-off insofar as they're pursuing this, this kind of military campaign. So definitely thinking this as a temporary ceasefire is the right way to do it. One of the aspects of the ceasefire that I found interesting was that it was actually internal pressure from the families of the hostages that kind of shaped and forced Netanyahu to consider this a priority. This was, as I understand it, in the first few days, not something that the Israeli government was very inclined to agree to. And yet the families were were able to organize and to demand that this become a priority and and they've succeeded. Do you think that that internal pressure 
is likely to cause other changes in the way that Netanyahu's government is approaching their military activity in Gaza. Perhaps, but it's got kind of a limited scale. It, it's it's actually not surprising for folks who've watched Israeli military operations for the last few decades. Like the Israelis put a huge, huge premium on the lives of Israelis. Um, when you had like Galad Shalit, um, a Israeli soldier who was captured during the 2006 Lebanon conflict um, and was detained for years and years, huge, huge national cause celeb. Uh, over that issue, um, a major political issue, a major social issue, um, and was a major policy priority to get him back as as was successfully done. Same is also true, actually, for the remains of Israeli soldiers and Israeli citizens. Um, there's often prisoner have been in the past been prisoner exchanges just for the physical remains of soldiers so they could be reinterred in Israel that have contained you know substantial numbers of Palestinian prisoners being removed or different funds being released, things like that. So it's actually more of an, the exception than the rule that Netanyahu initially launched this military operation after October seventh without really thinking about the hostages very much. I mean, look, this was not a military campaign aimed at rescuing hostages. If anything, it seems like it may have compromised that a bit because it quickly shoved Gaza into total chaos. And one of the reports we have uh, is that um, Hamas doesn't even know where all the hostages are because they're in the hands of lots of individual cells or sub-organizations or groups like uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad that are pseudo-independent or largely independent uh, and simply allied with Hamas. And so they weren't even able to necessarily deliver hostages they might want to be able to deliver now because the situation is so chaotic. And so part of the reason for these pauses supposedly is to give Hamas time to locate some of these other hostages and figure out uh, and you know touch base with these other cells and groups to say, okay, let's get these hostages under control and decide are these people we're willing to bargain with. The long and short of it though is, you know, I think in all likelihood you're going to see the conflict go back to what we saw before this pause. It's more of a ground campaign now, although there were signs that um, the bombing campaign, the air campaign was about to expand into the south, um, particularly because there's belief that several senior Hamas leaders have relocated there, unsurprisingly, um, along with the uh, you know substantial numbers of Palestinians. And you know where it goes from there, it, it could look a lot like the last several weeks um, if Israel pursues the same tack it's been pursuing thus far. Can I ask Scott if you have any sense of whether you would expect renewed hostilities to continue at the same clip when it comes to apparent civilian casualties in Gaza? Um, because I mean that that is one of the big issues that the Israeli government has obviously received criticism on from the United States, among others. There's significant divisions on it within the U.S. government, and there's been reporting about a conflict within just White House staff over it as well. I will say the New York Times has done some really great and frankly horrific reporting about what it is like in Gaza right now with in terms of, you know, people straining water through, you know, T-shirts in an effort to get the cleanest water that they can and reporting about how people in Gaza have suffered attempting to evacuate to the south um, and some of whom have been harmed by apparent Israeli military operations even once they do evacuate. So that strikes me as potentially concerning if, as it seems like Israel may be planning to, as you say, begin more aggressive operations in in southern Gaza. Is there any reason to think that Israel might pull back in terms of rules of engagement allowing civilian casualties, or would you expect it to be just as bad as it has been during this first round? And a sort of a follow-up to that. Uh, specifically, like, what role does U.S. pressure play here? And we talked a little bit before in the Congress segment on the 
sort of evolving nature of um, congressional opinion on this on this question. And as Quinta said, like the evolving nature within the Biden administration. So I'm curious sort of what role kind of U.S. domestic politics are going to play on the pressure that the U.S. puts on Israel and what that might look like. All really good questions. I mean, you know, part of this hinges on what Israel wants to accomplish. Very clearly, it was intent on removing Hamas's operational capabilities closest to Israel. It succeeded in, in significantly, di you know, diminishing those. It seems um, whether it would be as intent on taking such dramatic steps to do that in the south, not as proximate to Israel, would hinge on kind of the tempo and you know extremes to which it's willing to go with a bombing campaign. I suspect also the extent to which it's going to try and move in and occupy or search or exercise control over the tunnel networks or the physical territory in Gaza as part of a ground campaign. You know, we've seen the ground campaign underway now for a few weeks. Civilian casualties do appear to be substantially lower, perhaps unsurprisingly during the ground campaign, certainly far from zero still. But uh, they have kind of the, the pace has dropped a little bit uh, because it is a slower moving, a little bit more precise. Um, you can see things like uh, the Israeli military incursion into Al-Shifa hospital, which while people can debate whether the Israelis were correct, whether that there is actually a Hamas headquarters underneath it or not, or command center, as they've alleged. And there's reason to think that that may not have been quite accurate, although there also are signs there was at least some Hamas activity there, to say the least. Nonetheless, that was an operation that they actually didn't just hurl a rocket and blow the hospital up. They actually searched it with soldiers. They did things that preserved civilian life in a way, frankly, that's a lot more consistent with what most people read, the Geneva Conventions and other international law to say is, is soldiers are supposed to be doing, militaries are supposed to be doing. That all, I think, reflects the strategic priorities for Israel. It also reflects the fact they're sensitive to the global realities and the impact of political realities on their allies, particularly in the United States. I think they get, and we've heard Israeli leaders, or at least prominent former Israeli leaders say, they understand the window is closing of international tolerance um, for the Israeli military campaign. The question is, what is the tolerance of the Israeli leadership for, for their determination to stay on this particular path, whatever the path is? Because again, we have not gotten a very good sense of what the end state is from the Israeli leadership. Um, but whatever that trajectory is, how intent are they in staying with it and how much international pain do they think they can withstand? Remember Netanyahu first priority has been for a very long time his domestic political situation. And he is in a coalition with a lot of extreme far-right elements um, that may see opportunities to advance certain policies or may just see this issue through a particular lens that says, no, it's really worth it to try and, you know, consequences be damned, severely diminish various Palestinian capabilities um, in this window of time. And we're going to keep pushing that avenue. Um, and BB might say, well, whatever international pressure we have, it just isn't rallied by the prospect of me losing my coalition and therefore losing power. That's really the question is to say what what the tolerance is in these sorts of trade-offs. That said, you know, it's clear the Biden administration is also feeling the political pressure. We just saw some polling come out pointing how I think most uh, American voters under 34, I think was the demographic band they put, were like really, really not approving of the Biden administration's handling of the conflict. You know, who knows how many votes that translates into foreign policy issues rarely translate directly into people saying, I'll vote over this issue, but they tend to have, in my mind, kind of a, a meta effect because they reflect on the competency and confidence in the leadership and the decision-making of the president. So I, I don't think they're meaningless. Um, I think that probably is the Biden administration nervous. I think they see support among their own allies in Congress, as we've already talked about in regards to the Israeli assistance package, beginning to waffle around Israel. Um, and frankly, I think Biden is himself a strong supporter of the state of, of Israel, has been for a very long time, but is probably a more 
in the direction of that position than is the average member of his party at this point. And that's going to create tensions at a certain point if Israel continues on this trajectory that a lot of people are raising, I think, reasonable concerns with. Yeah, it's worth noting, well, while we were recording, uh, the national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who's on the far, far right, tweeted uh, in Hebrew, stopping the war equals dissolving the government, uh, which I I certainly read as a threat to Netanyahu and I think in- indicates uh, the sort of domestic political bargaining that is going on here. Exactly. And, and we've heard reports from American policymakers engaging in this space all off the record, all all speaking to reporters without attribution, but talking about how, you know, every time Netanyahu is in a meeting, he's looking over his shoulder at Shmotrek and Ben Gavir and these other people in his coalition, reading the tea leaves of what they're willing to stand. And he is, you know, stuck in this political position of his own making by virtue of his coalition in this difficult position. And at some point, Israel is going to have political accountability for this attack, which did happen under Netanyahu's watch in a period where they had siphoned military resources away from the border with Gaza to focus on the West Bank and settlers in part because of this aggressive policy of supporting settler activity in the West Bank. That is a priority of his coalition. There's going to be political accountability for that. There has to be at a certain point. But the kind of Israeli traditional model dating back to at least 73, if not before, is you deal with that after the conflict. So that could even be what is being referenced there is the fact that you know a lot of these political changes come after the war um, is traditionally been concluded. But the, at this point, when the war is concluded here is a little bit of Israel's own making because the ultimate goal they're aiming for isn't clear. Again, we don't have any description from the Israelis about what they're trying to achieve as an end state in Gaza. Molly, I'm kind of curious from you, you know, my sense has been that the you've seen this slippage around the Israel issue, particularly among Democrats, among some senior Democrats like Dick Durbin and other folks that are that seems pretty notable in small ways so far, but but significant ways. Do you have a sense about how tied that is to specific, you know, civilian casualties? Is it the West Bank settler violence, which is something the Biden administration seems much more willing to push back on? Um, as opposed to civilian casualties in Gaza? I mean, how does the politics play out here? Is that really a consideration in terms of the support bill for Israel or of broader political trends that the Biden administration or members of Congress may be worried about in terms of 2024 elections and beyond? Yeah, it's a great question. And you noted before, Scott, the sort of release of some polling that suggests that voters under particularly voters under 34 are um, quite unhappy with um, the Biden administration's handling of this. And I think to the extent that what we're seeing from some Democratic members of Congress, to the extent it's responding to that uh, trend in public opinion, we should situate that in the sort of broader narrative that young voters in particular are just sort of quite unhappy with the state of the world. And I say that because I think that rightly or wrongly, a lot of Democrats are very concerned about mobilizing um, younger voters ahead of the 2024 election. And so, you know, if it's those folks who are perceiving that the economy is not doing well, uh, irrespective of kind of economic indicators that suggest things are going okay, then people might just, I think there's a reason to think um, Democratic 
lawmakers are going to be somewhat sensitive to um, the public opinion they're perceiving among younger voters. So I think that's that's one thing um, to think of. I mean, I think more generally, we also just like the evolution of opinion in the United States on Israel generally, um, I think is important, um, important to keep in mind. I don't know that at the end of the day, um, some of the sort of, as you put it, like, slight pushback against um, the administration from senior Democrats. I don't know what that would mean for um, the support for uh, the foreign assistance supplemental that we were talking about before. Um, Again, even Biden himself kind of started to inch towards the idea that maybe we should be placing some conditions on aid to Israel, like what exactly that would look like. I don't know whether doing that would start to lose votes among Republicans. I don't know. It is certainly kind of politically interesting um, trend to note, um, especially I think you do see this particularly among what we, I don't love this term, but like high information voters. So the idea, people who are like really plugged into the news are sort of the kinds of people who are, you know, consuming information about what's happening in Israel. Um, There is this, and we're starting to see it in the data and certainly like anecdotally speaking to people, you see this big generational divide um, among folks who are generally uh, democratically aligned in their attitudes towards um, what's happening in Israel. So, Scott, President Biden had a, an op-ed in The Washington Post, which I always like because they put the little bio and it says Joseph Biden is the president of the United States, setting out a statement about U.S. support for Israel as well as Ukraine, um, but also indicating the potential for a stronger U.S. pushback than we've seen so far against Israel if uh, Israel continues on the path that it's headed. So I was curious what you thought about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting op-ed. I think it's it's a big deal in the rhetorical turn it makes, although I think the actual measures it is suggesting might be on the table in the near future are, are pretty limited. I mean, he basically comes out and says, re-endorses a two-state solution, um, a solution that has been pretty moribund for a while now because a succession of Israeli governments have been supporting settlements of the West Bank and other measures that really haven't moved the needle, if anything, have moved the needle away from uh, any sort of Palestinian statehood and haven't really been met much with much pushback by the United States or or meaningfully by the international community, although the international community has certainly objected to a lot of those activities. And so, you know, re-engaging on that is interesting, rhetorically emphasizing, hey, this is really important, is interesting. Not new, um, particularly not new for Democrats. I was in the Democratic platform um, at this last election suggesting that that's the direction Israel needs to go in or it needs to find a way to give Palestinians a full bundle of rights within the context of a single Israeli state, which is a much more challenging enterprise, I think, for for uh, a lot of uh, Israelis who want Israel to be a, a Jewish state. So it is a, it's, it's a change in position, change in tone, um, and think about the issue that's notable. And then the specific measures he really puts on the table are targeting West Bank settler violence, um, where we've seen a number of cases where settlers in the West Bank are engaging in violence uh, in ways that aren't necessarily new, but are greater tempo with more aggressiveness um, against Palestinians trying to create more kind of beneficial facts on the ground, uh, in some ways, arguably seizing on an opportunity here uh, where they think they can get away with that and with some support from far-right figures in Netanyahu's coalition. This seems to be a, a shot across the bow saying we may do something about this, basically threatens kind of visas uh, withholdings that are not insignificant, particularly because like a lot of Israelis do travel to the United States. But let's be honest, they're not like 
they're they're the very first line of a long list of things the U.S. government could do to these people if it wanted to, and so maybe it's a sign the Biden administration is willing to go further. I suspect that's still a little ways down the road, but that this is a a, a shot across about the Israelis saying, "Hey, look, we're going to take this seriously. We're on the verge of having to take coercive action." I think that's also how I would also interpret the conditionality talk by Biden, where he said essentially, "I couldn't go in with conditionality. We had to bring you know have credibility with Netanyahu with Israelis right after October seventh, but now if we." Do you think going in our way? Maybe there's a case to be saying we we need to have some conditions about you know before things drift too far in a bad direction around civilian casualties, around departing from a two state solution, something else. There, you know, the Biden administration is trying to present an end state, a, a goal of this conflict, which is to move back towards something like a two state solution where the PA Palestinian Authority would also run Gaza. But to get there, the U.S. government's going to have to do a lot of policy changes. Those changes are mostly means changing, putting more pressure on Israel, um, because it's Israeli policies that have really undermined a lot of those last few years, particularly around settlements in the West Bank. And so, you know, the real question is how much is the Biden administration willing to put its money where its mouth is uh, on these policies? Um, how much credibility is it willing to do so? And then how meaningful will that be if the next president doesn't feel the same way, isn't willing to do the same things? Certainly, certainly if reelected President Trump. All signs are is that he's not going to do anything to slow down those settlers as he, if anything, helped facilitate a lot of those sorts of policies during his time in the White House. So long and short of it is, um, you know, it's a first step. It's a notable change in rhetoric. Um, but how meaningful it is is yet to be seen. A lot of policy would have to follow to really drive those stated goals home. And uh, it'd be a pretty dramatic step for the Biden administration to take. Maybe it takes it, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. All right. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Quinta, what do you have for us today? I would like to recommend a very current book that was published in, drumroll, 1996. Uh, It is a novel by the Chilean author Roberto Bolaño, who is one of my favorite writers, uh, called Distant Star which I read uh, many years ago and reread over the Thanksgiving break. Um, so Bolaño's sort of magnum opus is this brick of a book called 2666, uh, which is sort of Moby Dick-like in its bewilderment um, and and length. This is way shorter. This is like less than 200 pages. Um, so if you have ever considered trying 2666 and been put off, I would highly recommend this. It is... Short, sweet, to the point. It's very spooky. Um, it's about, as all of Bolaño's books are in one way or another, the 1973 coup in Chile and sort of the the nature of art and the far right. Um, there are uh, a lot of echoes, I think, that make it particularly contemporary, um, which is why I picked it up again. So Distant Star by Roberto Bolaño. I actually just found my copy of 2666 at my parents' house while Hell I was yes. there for the Thanksgiving <laughs> holiday. I was sorting through some books. It's this cool, like three split into three volume box Ooh. set sort of thing with like fancy art. So honestly, that book slaps. Highly recommended. It is. It, I read it, you know, I think spooky as hell. Ago, like 15 years ago, but it was, it was enjoyable if a little bit of an intense read, as I recall. It is very, uh, there's a lot to get through, but it was interesting. Um, but it looks good on bookshelf and nothing else. I will do my object lesson next before we get to our two special guests uh, to give you all a prime position. It is, of course, Thanksgiving this past week. I did a lot of cooking, a lot of cooking. I made two, not one, but two eggplant parmesans. That turned out pretty well. I made whole sheets of scalloped potatoes. But the dish that really won me over, because I've tried so many variants of this recipe as the father of a two-year-old, and I finally found one that really is exceptional, is a platter of mac and cheese I made. 
and it wasn't hard. It was super easy. It's Eric Kim's Mac and Cheese from New York Times. I was very dubious. It's like got Velveeta in it and then just like just an absolute ton of cheddar cheese. But damn, if it's not good. I got to say, it's the best mac and cheese I've ever had. It was amazing. Um, and he said he based it off Stouffer's. I don't even like Stouffer's mac and cheese, but I thought this was really, really good. Um, he even bakes it at the end and I ate it before baking it. I might have liked it. it was just creamy off the stovetop. So that's my object lesson this week. Try this mac and cheese, man. It is wild. It will satisfy your two-year-old. It'll sa- satisfy your, you know, 62-year-old or 72-year-old in your extended family for the Thanksgiving or now, uh, you know, forthcoming holiday season. So check it out. Eric Kim has been a real superstar for me the last couple of weeks and the cooking front. And uh, this did not fall short. Molly, what do you have for us this week? Sure. So uh, it's helpful to start by telling listeners that one of my favorite genres of podcasts are deeply reported podcasts from local NPR affiliates. Um, I've learned a lot about things around the country um, uh, from listening to uh, various uh, podcasts produced by uh, local NPR affiliates. And my recommendation today is for one from the fine folks at WGBH in Boston. Um, It's called The Big Dig. Um, And let me tell you, it's nine parts. It's about um, the big dig. So if uh, you have not spent a lot of time in Boston or New England um, and are unfamiliar with the big dig, it was this massive infrastructure project to basically move Boston's central artery. So one of its major interstates below ground and then sort of redevelop the land above it. It starts in like the mid 20th century, goes all the way through to the present. It covers basically um, everything you would want to know about American politics through the lens of this one particular um, episode. There's a whole, there's an episode um, on getting funding for the big dig in Congress, where there's like a major plot point involving a veto override vote. There's stuff about government contracting. There's stuff about racism in the American city. It's really, really well done. Um, I am a person who spent some of my life um, in New England, so it had sort of special residents for me for that reason. But even um, if you haven't, and maybe even if you're just interested in like engineering marvels, because really, the process of burying an interstate highway is like a pretty significant engineering achievement. It really has something to offer everyone. um, And maybe it will also get you like me hooked on this particular kind of podcast, in which case I can recommend others, um, including one I listened to recently about uh, pizza in uh, the state of Michigan. So uh, next time I'm on, we'll talk about that too. Detroit style, baby. It's taking the world by storm. It's like all uh, over the place. It's these not. Days. Ju- it's not just Detroit style. Um, there are uh, Southeast Michigan is the home <laughs> of a number of America's greatest or worst, depending on your opinion, pizza chains. <laughs> so um, I am also um, also happy to talk at length about that. Another place where I've lived for part of my life. Love it, love it, Eugenia. What do you have to bring us home with this week? So last time I was here, I received a lot of love for my video game opinions so i'm gonna make One of this the most popular object lessons yes well done. I, i'm gonna make this my thing and <laughs> i i want to continue with with good recommendations hopefully i get love for this one too i'm recommending a very short sweet uh video game for those of you who like scott only has a couple of hours to play video games it's called what remains of edith finch It is a first-person exploration game. Uh, You're given a key to, you know, your childhood home. So you're walking around. It's a little bit eerie. It's a little bit creepy. It's a lot of heartbreak. And you're just uncovering family secrets and stories. So if you want something that is low commitment, you can do it 
one night. I, I don't think it took more than a few hours to finish. Highly recommend. Also, it's beautifully designed. It's just beautiful art. It's engaging. I, I just I, I can't recommend it enough. What Remains of Edith Finch. Well, that sounds depressing, but interesting. No, <laughs> it's not depressing. <laughs> but interesting. I'm on board. I, I, I admire your optimism that you think I have a couple of hours to play video games. Sadly, <laughs> sadly even that is overshooting me. But over um, the course of a couple of weeks, uh, well, I, yeah. I may yet give it a try. We'll see. Or I may just play Skyrim like I do every every year for about three hours. So we'll see. We'll see what if you only out. have three hours, go play this. Okay, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So be sure to visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work, and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. While you're at it, come and follow us on Twitter at RATLC. Oh, not Twitter. Come and follow us on X at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening, and sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Gnome Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host Quinta and our special guests, Eugenia Lostry and Molly Reynolds, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.